Welcome home and welcome to the Mount Carmel podcast. Today you'll be hearing from Pastor Ted Hill, the program director of the Canadian Lutheran Bible Institute. He'll be teaching on the topic of the trustworthiness of Jesus. share with you some pretty profound reading from a former Lutheran bishop that had become a Roman Catholic priest. How often does that happen? (laughs) And he wrote some pretty amazing stuff. Nate, oh, Nate's over there. Do you know Bishop Bob Jacobson? You You know that name? I don't know why you would per se, but you just know people, so I thought maybe, yeah. Awesome. Let's pray because I uh, need the Holy Spirit to gather my thoughts. <sighs> Come, Holy Spirit, and shape this time and this space with what, uh, what you are, are just delighted to do, delighted to uh, take us on a journey in your word. What are you going to shape in us uh, in these in these last moments here today. What are you gonna chisel and scalpel and paint and, and pen? What are you going to do? What are you gonna start? What are you gonna take a next step in our discipleship? And may you be very intentional about reminding us, like you say in your words, you, Holy Spirit, testify with our spirit that we are your children. We know who we are because you tell us who we are. We settle into that. See how trustworthy you are as you pick up hammer and chisel, scalpel, knife, pen and brush. So take us on a journey in, uh, in this extraordinary sermon you preach, Jesus. Matthew 5, 6 and 7. May it be your living and active word in this moment. In your name we pray, amen. How many of you want Jesus to pick up a scalpel and start transforming your life, cutting things away? It's good that y'all, yeah, the spirit is willing, (laughs) but uh, sometimes the flesh is weak. Maybe I do like it if if I want him to do what I I want him to do. If I want him to get rid of this thing or this thing, but it's when he goes, uh, Ted, there's something else you're completely ignoring, and I want to go to that. Do you trust me? Do you trust me? And I think Jesus, and again, he doesn't, he doesn't coerce, uh, he doesn't manipulate, but he is clear. And that's, and that's what I guess we see quite profoundly in the Sermon on the Mount. So what is Jesus using in your becoming? It is, a, is it a scalpel? Is it a chisel? Is it a hammer? It just outright and just knock a chunk off. No chisel involved. Just boom, that corner's gone. Ah, okay. Do you trust him? What's he using in your becoming? And so I see the challenges of Jesus, particularly in, in the very revolutionary things of the Sermon on the Mount, particularly chapter five. A lot of it is revolutionary, but we'll probably land in chapter five and touch on Mark eight, nine, and 10. And these are the three times where Jesus talks about his suffering, death, and resurrection, and how his disciples respond to that, and how he responds to that. <laughs> and there's always some transformational becoming in these challenges. 
So, and again, I say over and over again, we remind one another we belong. Whenever he's doing uh, transformational work, formational work, uh, we need to hear that he announces this to you and I. And we want to remind one another we believe Jesus is the one who is the author and perfecter of our faith. He creates and expands our faith. He's the one that does that. Jesus shapes our faith, our life and faith with intention and purpose, born out of a tenacious love and a transforming grace. I love the word tenacious when it comes to God's love because sometimes it's not warm and fuzzy, sometimes it's really, I often speak about God's love, it, it, it has teeth sometimes. It's gonna grab a hold and not let go and uh, sometimes it feels like uh, he's attacking, he's not. He is tenacious though because he's bent on saving us. Do we trust him? So let's read Matthew 5. So Jesus did a lot of miraculous stuff uh, before this. Uh, Just finished healing a man. Um, He wanted to see. So beautiful. So right after that. And uh, whenever Jesus did miracles, there was big crowds. It just sort of happened. And so seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying... Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Notice the tense of that. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Notice the tense of that. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit uh, the earth. Blessed are those who hunger, thirst for righteousness for they shall be satisfied. I think that one very much fits with some of our discussions yesterday and the day before. Hunger and thirst for God putting the world to rights. Verse seven, blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called sons and daughters of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Notice the flip in tenses again, just like verse one. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely. On my account, I often say, not because I'm an idiot. On my account, sometimes we get persecuted because we're dumb. Uh, That's a whole other story. But if this is on my account, accuse you falsely on my account, it's very distinctly connected with Jesus and who he is. Anyways, rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Just a quick pause here. I can't imagine uh, this discipleship teaching. Uh, This is is what he starts with. (laughs) It's a strange beginning. And I find that fascinating. And then Jesus jumps into some identity statements about us. Right from that he says, you are salt of the earth. A better translation actually is, uh, is 
is you alone, Christ's disciples, are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, can salt lose its taste? There's only one way it can happen. It's if there's impurities in it. It's the only way it can lose its taste. Otherwise, salt is salt is salt is salt. Salt we dig out of the earth is really old. It doesn't lose its taste. Anyways, uh, so he, th- th- that's what's important in here. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. <laughs> that's a shocking image, isn't it? I think there's some hammer and chiseling here. And then he goes on saying, you alone are the light of the world because it's Christ's light. So it's you disciples alone are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a stand and it gives light to all the house. And then also from the beautiful Lutheran baptismal liturgy, in the same way as we light the candle and bring it close to the baby or whoever's being baptized. (laughs) Let your light so shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. I love that. (laughs) And then he digs in. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law. Another English word is abrogate. I just like saying abrogate. Do not think that I come to abrogate the law. (laughs) I really don't know what it means. I just like the word. To abolish the law. Let's go with that one. Or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So the law is good, right? We know that. For I truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota or a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these, might be some scalpeling and chiseling here, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do so, will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, which I find fascinating. If you do this, you're still in the kingdom of heaven though. There's still mercy for you. There's still grace happening. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now he's not talking distinctly about uh, eternal life placement in terms of, of in heaven. Kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God, it's his rule on earth, heaven brought to earth. And, we, and, I, and often, I often translate this as, you're just not gonna see it. Because if your righteousness is the same as the Pharisees, you'll just like the Pharisees, miss the kingdom that has come. So it's all about missing it. It's not necessarily, necessarily an exclusionary, you're out of here, but it's very much a confrontation, a challenge to, what is our righteousness? Is it something entirely different from the Pharisees? And that's the key. It's connected to righteousness that is lived out of faith. That's what's really important there. I'll continue on, stop preaching for the moment. You have heard it said, this is where some intriguing scalpeling or paintbrushes or pens uh, come into play and are becoming. You've heard it said, 
that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, so we're, going, we're getting into a rhythm here. You've heard it said, but I say to you. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be liable to judgment. God's not gonna dismiss it. He's not gonna gloss over it. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire, Gehenna. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother. Catalasso. <laughs> I love that word. Be reconciled to your brother and then come offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and then you be put into prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. He's so much cutting this sense of I can do life on my own, I do it my way. That leads us into heartache. He wants us with him. You've heard it said, but I tell you. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent, and we'll add the women, women who look at men with lustful intent, it is a two-way street here, but it's not in Matthew, but we can include it, has already committed adultery with her or him in his heart. And then Jesus literally (laughs) uses a scalpel here. If your right eye causes you to sin, Tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that the whole, your whole body be thrown into hell. Gehenna, fire. And if your right hand causes you to sin, chop it off. Throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. It was also said... Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, everyone who divorces his wife except on the grounds of sexual immorality, because in Jesus' day, if somebody cooked poorly, I think that's the example usually given, you could say, no, I don't want you to be my wife anymore. It's just like this sense of uh, divorcing people on a whim. Jesus confronts that. Whoever divorces his wife except on ground of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard it said, heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, not yours, or by earth, for it is his footstool, it's not yours. Or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king, not yours. <laughs> and do not take an oath by your head, which is yours, but he gives this. For you cannot make one hair white or black. <laughs> let, let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. 
scalpeling, brushing, penning, chisel hammer, all of this is going on in these words. There's a huge shift. Now, he gets deep, he digs deeper. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Retribution, right? But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. There's all sorts of cultural references in there that some of you may know and uh, we can talk about it as well. Give to the one who begs from you. Do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Lots of chiseling here. And then he gets down to what I believe is where he is going. It's truly revolutionary. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons and daughters of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? What's the point? How can that do anything? That's what I see that as. Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. <laughs> Challenges that cut and remove and transform us into the becoming, the becoming who he desires and intends us to be. I want to spend a little bit of time in the Beatitudes, the blessings, this interesting word, makarios in the Greek for blessed, one of the harder ones to translate, right, Russ? Right, Nate? <laughs> it's a hard one. Um, that's what people tell me. I'm not smart enough to have tried to do a good one, but there's lots of smart people out there that have. We'll talk about that in a few minutes. This rhythm of you've heard it said, but I tell you, Jesus is shifting the whole culture of biblical interpretation, seeing the Old Testament through Jesus' eyes. These are interpretive principles that are absolutely essential. And when we look at the scriptures without looking at it through Jesus' eyes, we're missing it. That, I think the half the story comes into play uh, that Je- uh, Jesus preached through Russ. I was gonna say that Jesus preached on Monday. Jesus preached through Russ on Monday. Very important. You've heard it said, but I tell you, it's this rhythm that Jesus gets into, a huge aspect of becoming. Do we trust that he is going to expand our faith to live into this? Do we trust that we truly belong so that he can do this work in us? Before we talk about uh, the Beatitudes, I wanna land on that last verse. How many of you go, I don't know what to do with this. Therefore, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. How many of you go, yeah, good luck. Not gonna happen in my lifetime. 
There's something really important uh, about this because he is looking, this, this, this thing that Jesus said here uh, it takes into account everything that's come before it and particularly this last, you've heard it said, but I tell you. Um, Matthew 6, 35 to 37, oh, I should grab a Bible. It's on the phone. Turn to, no, 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 turn to Luke 6, 35 to 36. And you'll notice something intriguing that's really important because I wanna be let off the hook because I'm not gonna be perfect because that's not possible. So I will just ignore this verse. But Luke doesn't allow us to ignore this verse. Luke 6, 36, you'll notice something intriguingly different. So he says the same thing, but love your enemies and do good and lend. Expect nothing in return and your reward will be great and you will be sons and daughters of the Most High for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. All of that from 43 to 47 is summarized in in Luke's words there, same thing. And then Luke lands on this, what does it say? Be merciful even as your heavenly father is merciful. That is a good interpretation of perfect. Perfect is not about a moral perfection, not about making a mistake, not about doing everything right, but having mercy dwell in you as the father has mercy dwell in you. Having that shape how you see what's going on around you, especially your enemies. How do you love your enemies? With perfect morality or with mercy? Mercy is what leads us into this becoming that's towards perfection that's unattainable, but it's leading us into that. It's directing us there. Mercy is the most defining characteristic of the Father. How many of you love the end of Job? No, 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 sorry, Jonah. The end of Job's amazing too, but Jonah. What does Jonah do? (laughs) What does Jonah say to God after uh, he relents on his judgment? (laughs) He's mad, right? This prayer. I knew you were gracious and compassionate. I knew you'd change your mind. (laughs) It's so funny that he's mad at that, but he knew the defining characteristic of God was mercy. It is, and that is to be a defining characteristic of our life. That is where what we're becoming, which is so, Profound, and Jesus talks about mercy in the Beatitudes. And so he's holding something high. So he sees the, the, he sees the end of the sculpture. He sees what's inside the block of granite before he starts, and he sees perfect, and he chips away our whole life. And that chipping is revealing mercy, becoming. When we are merciful to one another, It is so life-giving. But to understand mercy is intriguing. What does mercy mean? Um, This is why I needed my notes. I'm gonna jump into because uh, it it seems right. So I wanna read to you a very interesting um, section in this uh, devotional book by... uh, Father Joseph R. Jacobson. So he's Father Joseph. He was uh, Bishop Robert Jacobson, Bishop Bob. He was the Bishop of the uh, Alberta and the Territories, a synod of the ELCIC um, uh, in the, uh, I think, 80s and into the 90s. And 
very wizened man, and he wrote this, The Beatitudes and Woes of Jesus Christ for the slow savoring of serious disciples. <laughs> so, I love reading Roman Catholic priest authors. It's some of the, it's some of the most intriguing, and, it, and it's different than most other reading that we do. I don't know, some of you I think are of uh, Roman Catholic background and maybe uh, in a Roman Catholic church right now and, and I, I have a huge admiration of a lot of things in the Roman Catholic church and, and, it, and it shows up most often in, in the writing because I'm not part of a Roman Catholic community very often. I have some friends that are and I love that but I don't get to take part very often. Let me tell you an interesting story, especially for those of you who um, are in a Roman Catholic church. Um, I, uh, I was part of a funeral for my nephew who uh, lives in northern Saskatchewan and, and uh, the darkness of his life got a hold of him and he killed himself and uh, um, my wife and I were asked to read and uh, do a prayer, uh, say a prayer at his funeral and it was in a Roman Catholic church and Roman Catholic priest and of course at funerals they have the mass and, uh, and, and to come and take the Eucharist and, and I was fully expecting just to sit there or him to come to bless us but my wife and I were sitting up in the front because we were doing the readings and everybody else was in the back and so the priest ushers me over, me first, to take the Eucharist. It's like, okay, this is an incredible honor because it's, it's, a, it's a big no-no normally. Um, and it's, oh, it's just so beautiful. So God surprises me all over the place. It breaks through those stereotypes that I have and, uh, and it's just such a gift. And so Bishop Bob, <laughs> I still call him Bishop Bob even though he's Father Joseph. He wrote this uh, devotional, and um, some of you may know Glenn Carlson. How many of you know Glenn Carlson? Yeah, he's one of my mentors, and, and he wrote, he's written all kinds of stuff called the Listening Bible, or Listening to Jesus. And so he, he uh, takes uh, uh, the, the biblical text, and he kind of, uh, he, he doesn't rewrite it in that heresy, heresy way, but he takes it and, and, he, and, and you read it from the perspective as though Jesus was speaking it in the first person. So he's done a whole bunch of these biblical books that way and it's just fascinating. And I, I think Bishop Bob and Glenn must know each other, I'm sure they do, and, and so Bishop Bob kind of did this. And so he looks at a beatitude or, or a woe, I haven't got to the woes yet and I'm kind of scared to get to the woes because he writes and there's a lot of scalpels and, chisel, and chisels here and, and, and also some paintbrushes and pens. Uh, but the first half, he writes it from the perspective of God speaking to us and the second half is our response in prayer. So I wanna read to you what he wrote um, for blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy and really realizing that a huge part of our becoming is how mercy characterizes our discipleship. So he writes this from God's perspective. Ted, there's a place for your name. Ted, child of God, I call you to be merciful. For I, the Lord your God, am a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love. I call, indeed command all my children to be merciful as I am merciful. Only to the merciless do I show no mercy. 
I call to you to tear from your heart every trace of that servant of mine who, though forgiven much, would not forgive his fellow servant in return. I call you to renounce whatever in you resembles that Pharisee Simon who thought he was entitled to my mercy and who thought everyone else should earn it just as he had. Rather, I want you to see yourself in the woman who anointed Jesus' feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair, forgiven much, loving much. I want want you to see yourself in the woman he met at the well at noon, too ashamed to draw water with the other women earlier in the day but too precious in his eyes for him to ignore and dismiss. I want you to learn from your walk with my son the difference between costly mercy that restores life and reopens the future and cheap sentimentality that strangles both. Between severe mercy that cleanses and really heals and gutless mercy that can't touch deadly sin, between true mercy that enables the disabled and false mercy that further disables them. Jesus' mercy is real mercy. It's the only mercy worth anything to you, my child. I call you to exercise it in every part of your life. It's the only reason you are alive to me as you extend it to others, you will receive even more of it from me. Extraordinary. And there's some scalpeling going on. And then the response, he writes, as a prayer. Dearest Father, make me merciful. Show me in Jesus how real mercy works. To bring life and a future to real sinners like me. Help me learn to never withhold it where you bestow it, and to never bestow it where you withhold it. Grant me the wisdom and the courage to waste little mercy on the merciless, to be far less moved by their hollow pleas than I am by the cries of their victims. Help me to grasp fully the real stuff mercy is made of. To see clearly what is so blurred in the eyes of all who do not know Jesus. The life and death difference between mercy and sentimentality. Your mercy says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Your mercy cannot ignore your own image still present in sinners like me. It honors me by holding me accountable for my actions to the highest level of my actual ability. It never offers an easy way out that would both trivialize both me and my sin. It never tells me I can't help it when in fact I can. It never settles for a solution that makes my future just a repeat of my past. It always insists that I join Jesus on the narrow way. Because otherwise, I am not on the way that leads to life. Dear Father, 
I see why there is in Jesus no place for cheap sentimentality. It whittles away at your image in us until finally there's nothing left of it. Real mercy is a shock treatment that jolts your image back to life in us. I am often in awe of Jesus' deft use of mercy to make people stronger, to give them courage and the means to start over with God. I know that when you call me to be merciful, Father, you are not talking about our feeble brand of mercy, the flimsy stuff that can't save anyone from real sin. You're talking about Jesus' brand of mercy that attacks sin at the root. Keep working, keep working with me, Father, until I am so familiar with real mercy that I can offer it in the toughest situations. Amen. Jesus confronted me at the end of the year this year in a very intriguing way, at the end of the school year this year, sorry. Um, we have a final uh, retreat, and um, we did some interesting things over uh, what we call dwelling retreats, that Jesus has made his dwelling among us. And uh, uh, we had this, this project with rocks, and we were building this interesting baptismal font out of rocks and epoxy resin. It's kind of cool. I like it. <laughs> I like making stuff like that. And the rocks, they were to write their name on it and something that God is making alive in them because we were talking about what we need to surrender at the cross, what needs to die in us. We were talking about that earlier and now we're talking about what's, what's being resurrected, what's coming to life in us. And so I just kind of presented this to the student body and then Dean, the president of CLBI, he stands up and said, Ted, can you help them with an example? <laughs> they didn't have an example written down and just boom, uh, the Holy Spirit uh, got a hold of me and it was completely uncomfortable but very important and it was some pretty scalpel thing. And you've heard a little bit about how, and I've been pretty brash or crass about talking about uh, my adult children still squatting in my house. We said, see how crash, crass and brash it is and, and they're moving out tomorrow and they'll be gone by the time. It's funny, I laugh uh, because there's a lot going on in me. There's still a lot to process but at that very moment I had just had um, a really angry interaction with my son-in-law who has um, he's had some trauma in his past. And, uh, they had a huge fire in their house and lost a whole bunch of stuff when he was 17 or 18 years old, right at the end of high school. And, um, and, and so, kind of, he struggles with mental health and a couple of different things with anxiety and stuff, understandably, and also hoarding. And he's, he has the ability to squirrel stuff away in amazing ways. And, uh, and, and I gave him a kind of a corner of my shop. Um, and my shop is, is how I want it to be. And that, that corner got filled up with the stuff he squirreled away. And, and then it started to stretch. And it said, I'm doing this. <laughs> and then outside, it started to pile up. And I like a neat, uh, a, a neat yard. And, it's just like <laughs> and all these types of things, they're, 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 they're happening. And... and, um, and 
And this was kind of, uh, this was still early spring and he had the garage door open and I had the electric heater going to try to keep it uh, above freezing. And, um, and he had the garage door wide open as he was doing stuff and I was just <laughs> starting to vibrate and, and I just lost it on him when I went in there and for a variety of things and I was irrational with it. I was swearing at him. I was merciless with him. And, and it shook him. It shook him. Like he tried to interact with me, he tried to bring up, well, what do you teach your students at Bible? Shut up, Will, shut up, don't bring that up, don't you dare. And I was, I was completely angry with him, mercilessly, and it shook him. And, uh, and, and there was a time when I wanted him to deal with the outside and start moving that because I wanted, I don't want it there. And, and he was, I could see him sort of vibrating with all the courage that he had to say, I need to set some barriers and boundaries. I need to set some boundaries if we're gonna do this together. And it's just like, oh, I really did shake him. It re-traumatized him. And it's just like, oh. And so this, all of this came back to me as soon as Dean said, do you have an example? Ah, dang it, I guess I do. Jesus is wanting mercy to be awakened and alive in me, to be merciful as your heavenly Father is merciful, to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, to do this. And that, 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 it still shakes me. I still haven't got through that. I have a lot to do. Um, When I get back to Canada, I have three weeks of staycation time. (laughs) And uh, and I know uh, that uh, Jesus is wanting me to process this and reconcile, a new relationship birthed out of, uh, he doesn't want me to repair the relationship with my son-in-law. He wants something new to be born, to be resurrected. Jesus wants us to be merciful as he is merciful. This is a huge aspect of our becoming. And it's going to involve chisels, it's going to involve scalpels, I don't know what else it might involve, sometimes it involves some pretty significant things. Because Jesus loves us that much, he does, he does. I wanna jump into Mark 8, 9, and 10. I feel the sense I want to ask, what's going on for you? As I shared that from Bishop Bob, Father Joseph, as I shared my story, as we look at these challenging, uh, big things in Matthew 5. We didn't even get to Matthew 6 or 7. There's big things there too. I just maybe want to ask, what's going on for you? What's Jesus scalpeling, chiseling, painting, or penning in you? Does anybody feel the need to share anything, or is it just kind of, we just need to continue on. I just want to make sure I don't miss that. Testing. The, um, I really like that, Ted. Thank you. Um, in verse 48, the, um, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. It's so hard for me not to hear that as just an individual, but it's a corporate it's to the disciples and it's y'all must be perfect, y'all right <laughs> they did that in the skit yesterday yeah and the <laughs> the um i just i don't my experience in community is that where where there's a mercilessness in me 
I do see it in someone else a lot of times, which is one reason the community is such so a sensitive. gift. Yeah. I see yeah. when I'm running on empty, there's someone else that's not running on empty yeah. and they're reaching out to someone that is, oh. and I can rejoice almost in the wholeness of the community, even though the community too is not perfect, yeah. but there's a wholeness to it, a becoming. And then yeah. I'm all, I'm, it's also the tool that God uses so frequently in my life to help me become um, it, both in the challenges of community, when you stick with community, yeah. um, and there's, there's some breakthroughs, I feel that, so I don't, I, 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 I just couldn't help but give thanks for community. I mean, and that even at a very small, I mean, just even Joy and I as a community, or our family as a community, or our young adult community, or our, um, church community, of course, yeah. but I'm, I'm just, yeah, I, I'm so, so grateful for the um, wholeness that is in community and then is also um, accomplished in, in community. There's a, um, St. Benedict uh, talked about one of the, one of the um, gifts in community or the vows that the Benedictines take is stability, and that is that they stick with a community yeah. and a, they stick with a household. Yeah. And, belong um, to one another, the scripture says. Yeah, they belong, says, yeah. yeah. And this is part of the becoming. Rowan Williams, who's the Archbishop of Canterbury before the current, the current one, uh, said that in, when, we, when we stick with each other, we have to, he says, habituate charity. Habituate. And when we don't stick with each other, we don't have to habituate charity. And that's why in a wedding stability, it's better, worse, richer, poorer, sickness, and health. Yeah, that's habituating charity and um so i just feel like even the the challenges in community are actually god's ways of of helping us become yeah thank you for opening it up to us today yeah and and that's so extraordinary and i just think about if um if uh, the holy spirit didn't nudge dean to to ask that question. I'm sure he didn't have in mind how it would pierce me with my mercilessness. There's no, there's no question, he didn't have that in mind. But the, the nature of the need to ask that question for clarity's sake, because he saw that, that's so profound. Yeah, the importance of the body. Yeah. Kirk. Thanks, Nate. I can resonate with that community idea, because I was thinking about the um, seeming contradiction where Jesus says, you are salt, you are light, don't hide it. Then in 6, he says, hide it. Hide your giving, hide your praying. Interesting, until something has happened, right? Until yeah. reconciliation. So oh. you, you hide and you don't hide, and, uh, mm. and uh, that seems like a contradiction, but I... I looked at it two ways. I thought maybe, um, maybe the kingdom of God is the salt and light in the sense of a group of people, and I, I don't quite accept that as the whole answer. Hmm. I, I, think, I, I think that those that pray in secret, those that give in secret, it's part of it. I think they become yeah. light even though they, the more they try to hide it, they try to hide the good things, but they glow with the mercy of God. 
And, and I so think the light's not happens. hidden. Their action it's, may be. Yeah. It's not really hidden. And I yeah. just think of some of my neighbors and I thought, yeah. I have neighbors that are really enjoy helping people. And um, I think, well, I don't do that, but um, you know, I, I'm trying to pass it on. And uh, if, I, if I pass it on, then I ask the next neighbor, don't pay me back, pass it on. Pass it on yeah. But I tried that. I thought, well, I'm gonna give to somebody and I won't take anything back. And of course, then other neighbors bring stuff over to me. You know, that's cool. I always got back double. It's so gonna happen. Yeah. yeah, that's the way the kingdom works. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure if this fits here quite or not, but I just want to say I often think of our congregation as a giant rock polisher, and it's. Uh, Rolling me around with yeah, the tumbling. rough stuff a lot and rolling off my rough edges a lot. And add that to a and tool. It, it's not always a good feeling at all, but it's, I think, where I'm supposed to be. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting because edges uh, come off, sharp edges that, that are sometimes the merciless actions. Yeah. Thanks for that. What else is going on for people? What's, what's God nudging? The ruster. Um, as as you're as we're looking at that verse and and be perfect, I decided to go. Hey, what is that word? So I looked it up. You know. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and the it, word is really the same word as like telos. Yeah, it is. It is like right. completion, complete, right? Yeah. And or even <sighs> your That's direction. Amazing. Yeah. And and I think where where this, and then connected to the merciful, and, and thinking. You know, what happens when, for a community or for ourselves, individually, when our direction is mercy, there is a, a completeness. And, and then with the breaking off in our lives, you know, you're breaking off those kind of incomplete places, yeah. which is the, the merciless. And it's a funny thing, right? Because when you experience it, it's so good. When you give mercy, it's so good, yeah. and yet there's still part of us that that chooses. Or there's places in, in our lives that, you know, like the grace of God just hasn't opened into, or hasn't moved in through, yeah. or I haven't wanted to deal with. Yeah. And those are the places where I don't have mercy for myself or mercy for others, and there's just an incompleteness there. Yeah. And then I then I jump forward to like the cross where Jesus says, "It's finished." Yep. Same word. Accomplished. It's Tell accomplished. Yeah. And it was like, yeah, I mean, Lord, keep, keep, keep after me yep. and after the community because yeah. it is so good when we're actually being merciful yeah. with each other. And it's so bad when we, when we reject it or we're not open to it or we fight against it. Yeah. So... I think that's just, and so now the one step further, thinking about my college students um, for next year, I think that word really is, I want them to be merciful, merciful. towards each other and merciful on, on the campus and hopefully be open to be receiving mercy. Yeah. So, so I don't know, you just, I think you've just wrecked my, uh, all my plans for student training for the 
for this summer. So, <laughs> so thanks a lot. I have to start Sorry, over. Dude. Sorry. Thanks, Jesus. And <laughs> yeah, right, thanks, Ted. Yeah. <laughs> so, so we don't start out with a perfect hundred and then get a demerit here and there until we get on the naughty list. No. That does not work that way at all. No, I, I'm understanding way. you. Yeah, it goes the other way. When I think about uh, uh, the context of community, I'm reminded of a time uh, at a church council meeting when uh, feeling a, a level of frustration. No pastor's ever felt that at a council meeting before. Um, and, uh, and it was interesting. I, I just, I just kind of shook my head and I said out loud, we really don't get the gospel, do we? And, and I was feeling it, but there was a lady beside me on the council, and she was deeply offended by that. <laughs> and she perceived that as, uh, uh, so you're telling us we're not saved type thing? It's, it's amazing how it wrecked her. But it, it, was, it was just really true in our discussion. We were just missing it all together. really don't get it. And every once in a while, it's, it's uncovered, <laughs> and we see it. It's a community, how important it is. Yeah. Jesus doesn't tell us to go off on our own and figure out how uh, to be merciful. He, he wants us in the context of community. Amen. Anything else that's landing for anybody right now? Yeah, I know, right? Yeah, and that, 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 that's kind of what it is. I think Nice, and this is my interpretation of it, nice is putting on a smile and ignoring what's happening. And I see um, ignoring brokenness, ignoring sin, uh, and mercy is in it for the long haul. Mercy's willing to engage that relationship and speak good news. Did you watch The Chosen last night? Yeah, when, when Jesus was confronting James and John there, yeah, he, he didn't just say, ah, you'll get the hang of it eventually. I think I wrote that here. Yeah, it's, yeah, in the next part in the booklet, uh, I'll, I'll read this. Are you willing to get it wrong? The disciples got it wrong. Is your greatest fear being exposed for getting it wrong, especially among your peers? What does Jesus do when the disciples get it all wrong? Well, he certainly never brushed it off saying to them, don't worry about it, you'll get the hang of it someday. He didn't do that with James and John. He kind of really confronted them about this sons of thunder thing and he was whimsical with that, but he was with them. So it was mercy that was active there. It wasn't nice, <laughs> right? Uh, and, and so that, that, that's my working definition. I know we use nice in a variety of ways, but mercy, it's more than that. There's a tenacity to it of God's grace active and mercy um, being kind of the, the foundation or the, or the or, or the water of it, I lost for an analogy, but that to me, that's the difference. Mercy engages uh, that which is broken and, and hurtful and hurting. Mercy brings healing. Um, I think, I'm trying to think of uh, some of the things that Bishop Bob wrote is so interesting. He said, um, yeah, it is, it's this, and, and it's not distinctly, but with nice, but he says, I want you to learn from, from your walk with my son the difference between costly mercy that restores life and reopens the future and cheap sentimentality. And I think nice is sometimes that. I don't want to just 
um, kind of come down harshly on the fact that sometimes we talk about being nice to one another. We teach our kids, be nice, don't be rude, and, that, and, and that's not what I'm particularly talking about. It's just this sense of nice because we don't want to engage or commit or invest, and mercy invests, I think that is it. Um, because cheap sentimentality strangles both. <laughs> Uh, life and future. Um, uh, the difference between severe mercy. Who was the guy that wrote that book, Severe Mercy? Yes, yeah. I've sort of read it. I've read in it. <laughs> I just love that phrase, severe mercy. Well, is that an oxymoron? No, it's, it's a mercy that, that attaches itself. There's a tenacity to that. A severe mercy that cleanses and really heals. And gutless mercy <laughs> that can't touch deadly sin. The difference between true mercy that enables the disabled and false mercy that further disables them. And I think sentimentality or false mercy is sometimes nice from my perspective. Is that helpful? Too much. <laughs> Was there some scalpel in that maybe? <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, just, just be nice. Just be smile. And that doesn't mean the opposite is grumpy. <laughs> Right? We can, we can be pleasant. I, and I usually use the word kind as the opposite of nice, and I think I'm starting to use mercy as the opposite of nice. Jesus was kind, but he didn't disregard sin and brokenness and, and waywardness ever. He didn't. He didn't say, oh, I'm too tired, I'll deal with that some other day. <laughs> never did that. Never did. Yeah. Thank you for the rock polisher image, by the way. I wrote it as another one. Any other thoughts? Wanna to touch briefly if, uh, if there are no other on the rest of this and maybe we'll go early. What's landing for you? What's, what's becoming? What scalpel's being uh, put to the heart? <laughs> or what brush is creating something in the becoming? What pen is writing a word on your heart? Let me take five minutes to briefly touch on Mark 8, 9, and 10. Um, uh, Jesus starts uh, a very intriguing part of the becoming, and I think the first one's a pretty, pretty solid chisel. <laughs> Jesus starts teaching that the Son of Man must uh, be handed over to sinful man, must suffer, must be killed, and on the third day rise. And Peter, after, just after, what did Peter do just before Jesus said that? He said, Russ has brought it up a couple times, he just, just said, you are the Christ. You're the son of God. And uh, Jesus says, blessed are you, Peter. That didn't come from your own thinking. That came from the Father. It was revealed by my Father. And then right after Jesus teaches about a suffering, death, and resurrection, Peter has the audacity to rebuke Jesus <laughs> And he rebuked Jesus because Peter's idea of what the Messiah was to be didn't involve suffering and death, right? And so Jesus needed to chisel away at Peter's idea of what the Messiah is supposed to be. And Jesus will not be defined by us. <laughs> and so he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, you are a Satan. He, he wasn't calling him the devil himself. Uh, Satan in the Greek is just adversary. He's not the king adversary. 
So he wasn't calling him the Satan, he was calling him a Satan. You're against me, you're my adversary. That thinking does not come in line with my purpose, my mandate. Get behind me, Satan, for that did not come uh, from God. You have your mind set on things of man, his idea. And, what's, and, and of course he does a few other things there as he addresses all this. And what I find fascinating, and this is merciful, this is a, because if I was Jesus, Peter would have been done. Yeah, there would be a replacement. Where's the substitute disciples? It's time for one. Peter's done. He's out of here. He blew it. What happened right at the start of chapter nine? What did Jesus do? Eight days later, what did he do? Somebody flip over the page. Yeah. Peter, James, and John. <laughs> The three that are kind of nuts <laughs> from, from our human perspective, right? Sons of thunder and the one who just rebuked Jesus. The one Jesus just rebuked. Come up the mountain with me. Wow. That's an act of mercy because he was gonna reveal something. He's gonna reveal his divinity to Peter. And, and, and Peter heard the word. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. <laughs> Right? <laughs> Don't have your mind set on any more of those things, your ideas about what the Messiah is, but listen to him. Listen to him. So profound. And then uh, Mark chapter nine, the next time Jesus is teaching about his suffering, death, and resurrection, the disciples are silent on the road. They are fearful to question him. And what are they doing on the roads as they go? They're doing something very interesting, which um, is, is fascinating to think about what was going on. They were talking amongst themselves about who was the greatest. Who's the greatest disciple? Now it sounds a lot like egotistical thinking and a lot of ego battles going on, but it's interesting. Jesus said this a second time. And this is one interpreter's understanding of what kind of was going on here. If Jesus was literally uh, predicting that he was about to die, in Jewish tradition, says one interpreter, then one of those disciples was to replace the rabbi that was to die. And which one of those disciples was supposed to, was supposed to replace the, the rabbi? The greatest one. So it wasn't as much this ego trip and, uh, and trying to convince one another that one is better than the other. They were, they were taking seriously what Jesus was saying. That's one interpretation and I like that. Because Jesus then invests in that and he grabs a child and brings it among them, which was revolutionary too. To, to, to use a child as a significant uh, point of teaching and revelation because he reveals something. Whoever uh, welcomes one of these children welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. He's using a child and childlike faith and our attitude towards those who are, are considered nothing until a certain age. They weren't persons. They weren't human in a way and and and. and and that's, that's fascinating, Jesus flipped that. Another punch to the cultural norms right here as he talks about if, you're, if you wanna be the greatest, you must be the least and servant of all. There's a completely different understanding of what it means to be the greatest. And so if you think you're gonna replace me, this is a new attitude. So that's really profound. And then in chapter 10, Jesus does the same thing again 
and, uh, and he's teaching, and, and, it's, and it's even more blatant. Uh, this, uh, I'm not going to read through it because we don't have time, but there's some, some language in there that it, he gets a little bit bolder about what it's going to look like in terms of his suffering and, uh, and the unjustness of his, of his, of his punishment and, and his crucifixion and, his, and being killed. It's, it's really fascinating. And so this time, uh, the response is James and John come up to Jesus, right? They come up to him and say, and, and, and this is also, it seems like they're just off their rockers. What do they think they're doing? And they come up and say, Jesus, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. And that's, it just seems like just blatant audacity. But what does Jesus teach about prayer? <laughs> ask. Whatever you ask in my name, my Father will do. So they're not off kilter here. And so Jesus obliges, what do you want me to do for you? <laughs> we want to sit at your right and left hand in glory. <laughs> okay, here's where the audacity really is. Here's where the ego trip really is. And Jesus says, well, can you be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with? Can you drink the cup that I drink from? Yeah, we can. <laughs> and he said, well, you will, but it's not for me to say who sits at my right and my left in glory. So there's a lot of chiseling going on as they, as, as they're, they're really, they, they, I see it as a beautiful desire to understand what all is this about because it's totally revolutionary. And Jesus engages it. He never stops. He doesn't say, sons of thunder, you've gone too far this time. Yeah, you guys are nuts. You don't know what you're asking. And then he begins to teach about what they need to ask. And there's becoming, there's transformation, there's shaping, and I love that. And it's, it can be sharp, it can be cutting, it can be painful, it can seem like he's against us, but he is not because we know we belong. We are welcomed, we are named, we are claimed, we are chosen, we are spoken over, we are loved deeply. And when we forget that, he surprises us in the midst of the impossible by expanding our belief through the miraculous so that we can know he is incredibly trustworthy in this becoming, in this transformation, this discipleship journey that will not end. We don't graduate until eternity. That's the only time it ends. That I am being discipled and it's never going to end. I'm on this continual discipleship journey, and it's extraordinary, and I'm thankful for that. And Jesus is gonna put me in a rock polisher now, and I like that idea. Let's pray. <sighs> Jesus, I thank you uh, that you don't just brush us off when we really mess it up, when we lose it on the people that we love. You don't condemn me. You do judge. You do make known to me what is needed and what is needed to be removed. That's clear. And I'm thankful that your judgment clarifies what you're up to, what is needed, and what is life-giving. And I pray that especially in the climate of our culture right now, it is so divided that you would bring resurrection in, into our lives, resurrection of mercy. Bring it alive in us, a severe mercy 
that is captivated by your character, that is captivated by your love, that is so willing and so committed. Give us a mercy that sees how trustworthy you are, Jesus. I thank you again and again for the gift of your living and active word. And I pray that you would continue to activate it and make it alive in us as we eat dinner, as we share our lives in, in restful conversations and in fun and games and in maybe high ropes for those who are going. And as we prepare to worship this evening and see what you're up to in different ways. Ah, Jesus, your grandeur is obvious. Your presence in our grief is real. And the beauty of who you are is always being made known all around us. Thank you. In your name we pray. Amen. Go in peace and serve the Lord. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Thank you for joining us today on the Mount Carmel podcast. We hope that you'll join us again for the next episode when Ted continues his teaching series on the trustworthiness of Jesus.